0: If life's a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. My guest today is actor and friend of mine Armin Shimmerman, whom you know from his many, many television appearances on different series. But for decades, American theater lovers have known Armin as a stage actor, director, company member, and Shakespeare scholar. I first saw him in Three Penny Opera at Lincoln Center in New York in 1976 in a production that starred Raoul Julia and was directed by Richard Foreman. And then I had the honor and pleasure to work with him as he portrayed the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy in my play, Discord, from late 2013 to mid-2016 in four different theaters. This podcast has evolved from my post-Discord talkback, and at some of those, Armin would join me on stage. And in years since, I have become a student of his lectures on Shakespearean rhetoric. Armin, my friend, it is a delight to see you.
1: Delight to be here, Scott. Thank you for asking me.
0: I know that you were born and raised in New Jersey until about the age of 15. Was yours a religious household?
1: semi-religious. My grandmother was not quite an orthodox Jew, but she respected all the, the laws of Judaism, made sure that uh, we went to synagogue on Saturdays, uh, Friday nights sometimes, respected all the, the culinary issues that uh, revolve around Judaism. Um, up until about the age of a little after 13, I come from a, from a single-parent household, My mother, well, my mother and my grandmother, we were part of the branch of Judaism called conservative. So we were neither orthodox nor reform. We were somewhere in the middle. Uh, And they had every expectation that I would uh, eventually become a rabbi.
0: What point did they become aware that you were not going to follow the path?
1: I think as they saw me become more interested in the theater, they began to realize that was the path I was going to take. However, I do have a a very clear vision of the moment when I decided that religion, Orthodox religion, or uh, was not for me. As I said, I, I came from a single mother household. She worked three jobs in order to make sure that my brother and I and, and her mother were all taken care of. One of the jobs was she was a secretary at the synagogue we attended. And on the high holy days, this synagogue took it upon themselves to go and ask the parishioners for donations for the synagogue. And uh, I remember them asking my mother, who didn't have a dime to spare, uh, to make a contribution. My mother offered a a small amount. They were not happy with that small amount, and they asked for more. And they sort of cajoled her while we're actually sitting uh, in the congregation, uh, waiting for the uh, rabbi and and the cantor to show up. And um, I thought, orthodox religion is not for me. If, if they're more interested in money than they are in religion, in the ethos of what we're trying to do here, then this is not for me. The, the taste of religion and, and going after that sort of career uh, staled in my mouth.
0: Did the stories in the Hebrew Bible fire your young imagination?
1: No, not really. Um, I'm sure the Bible plays a big part in Judaism. But for me, what struck me as most important about the Jewish religion, for me, and this may not be correct, is the sense of community. The sense of one generation helping the next generation. That to me is what was important and galvanizing about the Judaism that I was studying. It wasn't so much about what was in the Bible after all, for us, we read the Bible primarily in Hebrew, which I had a, a somewhat understanding of, but not very much. So most of it went over my head.
0: Were you bar mitzvah?:
1: Yes, I was bar mitzvah, and I read my Haftorah as I was required to do. And I think that was my first theatrical performance. Um, I think I liked the enthusiasm that the congregation was giving me for the work that I was doing. I think that might have been one of the beginning seeds of my becoming an actor.
0: And then you all moved so to Los Angeles when you were about 15.
1: Yes, my mother did an incredibly noble thing. As I said, she, was, she, she had a hard time uh, saving money. She lived hand to mouth. We all did. We didn't know it at the time, but as I look back, we did. And she realized that she really couldn't afford to send me to any schools on the East Coast. And she did a research and she learned about the UC system in California, University of California system, and found that if you were a resident of California, the tuition was minimal, almost non-existent. I think it was like at the time was $60 for a semester or a quarter. So she packed up my brother and I and her mother and herself and all of our belongings into a VW bug and by herself drove five, six, seven days across country while we were crammed in the back, uh, so that we could take up residence in California, which we did. She had an aunt who lived in Santa Monica. We stayed with, uh, her aunt for about two weeks and then we found an apartment and, uh, that began the residence, my residence in California. And which allowed me to go to UCLA in Los Angeles.
0: And then what I understand is that when you moved to Los Angeles, she thought that if you were to enroll in a drama group, it would help you to make new friends in your new home. Did you buy in on this plan of hers?
1: Not at the beginning. I think at the beginning it was fun and I enjoyed it and uh, I was intrigued by the opportunity to get out of myself and play a character. But it really wasn't until I started to perform in college that I really got bitten by the bug and realized this was something I, I wanted to follow.
0: What was your major?
1: I started out uh, as a poli-sci major. I, I thought that I eventually would become an attorney. And then I realized, I I wasn't all that interested in poli-sci, and I had a wonderful, wonderful Shakespeare teacher named David Rhodes, uh, who I'd taken two classes from, and I decided that I would like to become a little bit like him, and since he was was in the English department, I became an English major. And he became uh, a friend and was enormously instrumental in many ways in the beginning of my career. Did you do any plays? Yeah, at the time, the theater department at UCLA didn't require you to be a theater major in order to do main stage play, they plays. They closed
0: up the Shimmerman loophole.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, um, But I did a number of plays, uh, including Shakespearean plays. I did uh, Troilus and Cressida, I did Richard III, uh, I did All's Well That Ends Well. And primarily I was doing Shakespearean plays because that's what I was most interested in. I had the opportunity to audition for the San Diego Globe Theater um, and it is a very prestigious Shakespearean festival. And they hired me before I graduated. In fact, I missed my graduation altogether because I was working at the Globe. And there I met some wonderful, wonderful classical actors who advised me to do certain things It also was the beginning of my research into rhetoric and the meaning of words in Shakespeare. Scott, you've heard me tell the story many times, but I I think it bears repeating here. I was understudying a a part called Costard in Love's Labor's Lost. A line in the play that I had was, uh, no remedy in the mall. The the cue for this was two characters were telling me how to cure a a shin that I had recently scraped. And my answer was no remedy in the mall. That didn't make any sense to me. And I I did lots and lots of research trying to figure out what that meant, no remedy in the mall. And uh, only after weeks of, of exploration did I find a scholar who suggested it wasn't no remedy in the mall. It was no remedy in them all, that it was a typo. And that was the beginning of my skepticism about Shakespeare and the first folio. And my also interest in trying to learn as much about the language of Shakespeare, of the culture, of the Elizabethan times, uh, of, of what everything meant, of religion to those people as well. Because it was a major time of dispute about religion at that time between the Protestants and the Catholics.
0: Well, this is interesting to me and I hope to others because you you sort of have become like a monk in the the textual study of, of Shakespeare, for whom there's a lot of ambiguity, as there is for the for sacred works in many different religions. I remember taking your course one time and I wrote down these words, you said, um, the words mean what they mean. Mm. You just have to know what they mean.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, that is a mantra with me. The words mean what they mean. You can go further as an audience member, of course, but for, for an actor or someone reading the text, really just know what the words mean, and, and that's as far as you really need to go, as far as the understanding of the text. Yeah. Too often when I ask students, what does this word mean, they go into poetical interpretations of words, and that's of no use to anybody whatsoever.
0: What, what interests me about this is it's really too much to ask individual members of a modern audience, to put in a tremendous amount of study in of Shakespeare before they go to see a play. What I've heard you say that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me is if the actor knows the exact meaning, they will convey the proper meaning to the audience And what that reminds me of, in 1977, I was able to go to Moscow and got an introduction from Stella Adler to the Moscow Art Theater, and they got me tickets to a matinee of Ivanov by Anton. I brought along a paperback. So before going to the Moscow Art Theater to see this production, I read the play. So I had the play in my head, and then as I'm watching these people speak in Russian, they were so clear as to every every beat it was so clear to me that it didn't matter that I did not speak the language.
1: One of the things that you've heard me say many times is a lot of people suffer under the misconception that that Shakespeare is Old English or Middle English, and that the language is that the words are too difficult to understand. But the truth of the matter is, it, it, as you've heard me say many times, it's not the words themselves, it's the way the words are put together. And that is what the study of rhetoric will reveal to you, is, is when you see these relationships between the words, that all of a sudden the words are no longer as complex or as abstruse as you thought they were. They're actually much clearer because you're seeing the relationship between the words and not just the meanings of the words themselves.
0: And that lesson was brought home to me when I was very young, and I had a brother who was studying in England, and one summer went over there, we went to Stratford together, I saw Ian McCallan and Francesca Annas, first in Romeo and Juliet, in the afternoon, and then Winter's Tale. And I remember thinking, when the first intermission came, where was the boring port? Where was the part when my mind starts to wander? Well, it never occurred because it was so vibrant and so clear. But what I wanted to identify about your technique as a teacher is the endless patience that you have. And almost always when I see you guide them through a second take or a third take, I feel this joy as things become clear in their mind, and then it becomes clear for me. What a tremendous reward that must be for you as a teacher to know that you have successfully communicated a topic which in other more brutish hands could be intimidating. Thank
1: you for that. It is the pinnacle of joy when you teach is to watch the light bulb go off in a student's head when they realize, oh, now I understand. And when I see that gleam in the eye, uh, I am paid back for all the, the, the uh, carefulness and the, and the tact that I've used because that's all I want. I only want them to understand it as much as I do. And hopefully that will inspire them to go and study some more, not with me, but with other people or on their own, so that, so that language, which to me is an enormously powerful and rich thing that we have as human beings, uh, will continue. I fear in this age when everything is abridged, when you, when you write sentences using three or four words and everything is, is abbreviated, I, I'm, I, I fear that the richness of language will be lost.
0: I read somewhere where you were talking about why, despite your many appearances on television and in film, you keep returning to theater. And this quote from you struck me, language and the struggle of climbing that impossible hill is what makes me keep going back to theater.
1: Yeah, it's very true. One of the things I was taught as a young actor, that all life comes from the other actor. But there's also that other actor that we don't have in rehearsals, which is the audience. And so that's another impetus from other life form, from the collective bunch of people sitting out in the house that particular night that informs your performance as much as what's happening with the actors you're standing on stage with. It is a glorious, glorious event when something magical happens Not only between the actors, but between the ensemble, the production, and the people who've paid tickets to come and see this evening's entertainment. That to me, I know we're going to get into this, but that to me is heaven. That is heaven.
0: To continue that thought, I've heard you say that for you, theater is a religion. Aristotle says that the actor's contribution to society is that the actor undergoes a catharsis for the society, and the society experiences catharsis through the actor, and so feels better about themselves and learns something about themselves and about the world. As I interview more and more guests on this podcast and talk to them about, in William James's phrase, the variety of religious experience, your description of a theater experience is very much what I seek whenever I walk into a house of worship. I want that kind of catharsis. I think we live in a time right now where because of the lengthy pandemic, a lot of people have a, a spiritual yearning that maybe during this kind of time out that we as a civilization experienced together might have found themselves asking the big questions of life that very often our daily routine distracts us from. But they haven't found the kind of experience in a house of worship that provides the kind of catharsis that you find in the theater.
1: Well, for me, community is essential. That's what theater provides is community. You, 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 You meet a bunch of strangers on that first day of rehearsal and lo and behold, in four or five weeks' time, uh, you are a group and they become your best friends, and you share your innermost secrets with them. You support each other. It's a trapeze act. You swing and you expect them to catch you when you jump. I think community is what religion is always about. That, and that, these come from my Judaic roots, that religion is about community. And, and that's why I find work in the theater to be religious, because... We're all aspiring to a higher level of existence when you work on a production. The actors are aspiring to, to be outside of themselves and, and to find that those glorious moments. Playwright is looking at to do the same thing. How can my words reach out to an audience and move them? The director is doing the same thing. The scenic designers are all doing the same. Everyone is aspiring to a higher level of creativity, of existence, and communication. I have found catharsis being in an audience on rare occasions. When the audience has left, I'm still sitting in the theater staring at the stage because I don't want to give up that religious experience watching these people perform.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about and um, that magical experience of being in the audience
1: Absolutely. Uh, That's one of the glories of the theater. You always, for the most part, sit next to strangers. And you're strangers when when it goes up at eight o'clock. But you're not strangers when it comes down at 1030. Because you've all experienced the same thing together. You've all laughed together. You've all held your breath together. You've all wondered what the next thing was going to happen together. And though you may not be on a first name basis with the person sitting next to you, you have shared something together. And, and and oftentimes in the theater, you'll turn to a stranger when a show is over, and if it's stellar, and say, wasn't that incredible? You have to reach out to the stranger because you shared something together. And, and you're right. COVID kept us apart, and one of the great things about theater is it brings you together.
0: There was a profile written of you in Forbes in 2013 to continue this notion of community. And the journalist noted that when you're talking about the company, and he was talking about um, a TV show that you were in at the time, that you always used the plural we do or our when pointing to the collective contribution of the community of actors whenever you would answer one of his questions. And he wrote, it was always his intent to make as many people as content on the set as he possibly could to pay back the people who had been nice to him and for them all together to give the very best performance for the project that they could.
1: I stand behind that. I I think that's absolutely right. And I had role models who instilled that in me. Perhaps the first one was a wonderful character actor that unless you live in New York, you probably wouldn't know who he was. But amongst actors, he's a god. And that's Philip Bosco. Uh, Philip Bosco and I did two shows together. And for some reason, he took me under his wing. I was a young, fledgling actor. He was a very established actor. And he taught me how important it was that, that we say we and not I. And that the production is more important than the performance. And I was, um, I, I soaked up every word that Phil gave me. And I learned to realize he was always speaking the truth. Later on, when I moved to Los Angeles, I ran into another actor Ron Perlman. And Ron said about a show that we did together many years ago, he said, when you're number one on the call sheet, when you're the lead in a production, everybody who comes to the set, it's like a party. And you, number one on the call sheet, are the host of the party. And it is your responsibility to make sure that everyone is having a good time that day. Everyone is having a good time at the party. Make it easy for them. And I have learned That by following that advice, you make other people who are newcomers to that situation more comfortable and thereby give them the opportunity to give their very best. And again, with the the sole intent, not only doing the best work you can do and, and giving the production the best possible caliber of work, but also just as a human thing to make people feel comfortable. I have been in situations where people have not made me feel comfortable, and I shut down. I shut down. I don't want to do anything. That's not what you want when, you, when you're working in a community. You don't want people to shut down. So it's very easy to just be nice and say, what can I do for you? You know, what do you need to know? What, what can I explain to you that, that will make this easier for you? I have always thought that things are better because of that.
0: Armin, you were a uh, fan of the original Star Trek. Yes. And then you got a small role in Star Trek The Next Generation, which then, if I'm understanding correctly, that's what then led the producers and writers to be thinking of you for Deep Space Nine.
1: I believe that's so, yes.
0: You have said that you feel honored to be a part of, the, of this, the myth of our modern times. What special responsibility did you feel coming into this assignment? I don't think I felt a responsibility
1: except to do the very best I could. I did have an agenda. It's rather short, but it goes like this. I wanted to take the character with the least amount of potential and turn him into the character with the most amount of potential. Now, I'd like to say that was my idea, but actually that was given to me by Brent Spiner when I was asking him about Data when he was first starting that character. And... And those words were so true to what I wanted that I've cited uh, Brent ever since.
0: That's incredible. When the episodes that you were in began to be aired, how was the response to this project different than all other projects you've been a a part of before then? Uh,
1: Are you talking specifically about the franchise itself or about Deep Space Nine uh, particularly?
0: Well, Deep Space Nine in particular in relation to coming after a a legendary, iconic set of characters and conventions that your new project had to live up to?
1: Right. That's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Our show, Deep Space Nine, lived in the shadow of two major Star Trek entities, which was uh, Next Generation and the original Star Trek. People adored them, And when we started to air, people were disgruntled about the fact that we didn't have a ship, we didn't go anywhere, blah, blah, blah. We felt that we had not lived up to our potential, that we had not, you know, if it's a a relay race and you take up the baton and you run with it for a while and then you hand it to somebody else, we we didn't feel as though we had failed in the relay race. It's just that no one was interested in our segment of the, of the rally. Part of the problem also was all the previous Star Trek in- incarnations were all encapsulated. Y- y- you saw an episode. It lasted 43, 44 minutes. And at the end of the episode, everything was, was finished. And, and then the next week was an entirely different uh, story. We didn't do that. We started doing what's now de rigueur on TV, which is that we had long story arcs so that our episodes could last three, four, five episodes, maybe longer. And so people who came in in the middle were lost uh, originally because they they couldn't follow the story if you didn't follow it sequentially. But because of streaming, because you can do that now, because you can see four or five episodes at once, because you can go back and pick up what you didn't see before, all of a sudden our bona fides uh, have become greater and people are now realizing... What a tremendously well-written, well-acted, well-directed, well-designed show our show was. And though it's, it's 25 years later, it's nice to, to finally be uh, understood to be comparable in value to the shows that came before and possibly even to the ones that follow.
0: How was this different from all the other projects you've been a part of before?
1: Well, certainly the obvious answer to that is I had more to do in this than I ever had to do in any other TV project. On TV, I'd never had a series regular assignment. Everybody hated the Ferengi on Next Generation, and they often forget that I was that Ferengi in in Next Generation. I'm very appreciative of the fact that over the course of time, we took a rather loathed species or group of people and made them more human made them more palatable, uh, made them more likable, made them more understandable to the audience. And if myself and the other people who, who played Ferengi on our show were able to do that, then that's my contribution to the mythology. And I do think of it as a modern mythology. I do think of it as, as, as right out of the Greek and Roman stories about the gods, Um, because sometimes Starfleet is depicted as gods. The Ferengi weren't gods. Uh, We were the fauns and the satyrs of the mythology. But if we did that, and I was a part of that, then I've left a little mark on the franchise, and perhaps, if I can boast, perhaps lift a little mark on the history of television.
0: Armin, you you have been so generous with your time. There are a couple of questions that I ask people at the end of each episode. One of them is, upon our death, do you think that there will be any kind of judgment for us upon the life that we have lived here on Earth, how we've treated people, let's say?
1: Um, As far as celestial judgment, no. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think there's any of that. I do think uh, what you leave behind is your name, as Shakespeare would say, or your reputation, and you will be judged by the life that you lived, by the people that knew you, by the people who heard about you, and by the influences you left on people that you may have known or by, that you may have left on strangers.
0: You could choose one work of art for people to experience, could be a play or a film or a book, song, anything, that you think might have a transformative impact upon them, what would that work of art be? I thought about that
1: question, and I don't have a definitive answer. What I would say is, for me, because the theater is so important, any production that moves you, that gives you catharsis, is what I would want people to experience.
0: Armin, is there a, during tough times, is there a quote that you find yourself returning to that helps you and that you might share with us.
1: I do, and unfortunately, it's a little bit bit of a long quote. So this particular poem, it's Sonnet 29, Shakespeare's Sonnet 29, has been with me since college. And it gives me hope. I'll very quickly go through it. When in disgrace, with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven. With my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet, in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply. I think on thee. And then my thoughts, like to the lark at break of day arising, from sullen earth sings hymns to heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. That has gotten me through rough times.
0: Armin Shimmerman, thank you, thank you so much that I think that's my favorite sonnet. And I'm delighted that you read it. I cannot think of a better way to conclude this episode. Armin Shimmerman, thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. And now for today's sermonette, which I call In My Homily Opinion, we have a special reading by Armin Shimmerman. From late 2013 to mid-2016, in four theaters in two states, for almost 150 performances, Armin brilliantly portrayed the great Russian writer Tolstoy in my play The Gospel According to Thomas Jefferson Charles Dickens and Count Leo Tolstoy Discord. This trio of historical figures, each from the New Testament, crafted his own unique personal gospel. And in my play, they find themselves in a limbo where each thinks his path to salvation depends on convincing the other two that their theology is wrong. Much of Tolstoy's dialogue is taken from his 1880 memoir, My Confession, and today I have adapted one of the play's scenes into a monologue, which I am honored now to have Armin read. Enjoy.
1: Here is how I became the first man in 1800 years to discover life's secret. From Jesus, in three words. Self-perfection was the deepest goal of my boyhood. I thought God made me for a purpose which I must discover and fulfill. But by 18, I was an atheist. Perfection meant impressing my elite friends. They said, Do not lie to a man, only to a woman. Never cheat anyone but a husband. And never pardon insults but give them. For nine years, I cheated, robbed, dueled, drank, gambled, beat peasants, and had my way with their women. In wars, I killed men, and for all of this, I was praised. I wrote trash for vanity, more praise ten years, I was as famous as Shakespeare, but I grew dejected. Matters such as running my estate or writing fiction were replaced by the question, what for? I had no reply, and my world collapsed. I, a rich, healthy celebrity with a loving family, saw life as empty. Reason said, life is evil. Philosophy was no comfort. Science called me a randomly united clump of fermenting sludge. Suicide seemed as noble as perfection. I go on. Then, out my window, I saw peasants working my fields. These poor simple folk live hard lives, but accept death and think suicide the great evil. They brave illness and sorrow and experience great joy. I came to love theirs as the true life. I had tried to refute the idea of God by reason, which is like pulling the spring from a watch only to be shocked when it does not tick. I found life's meaning when Christ's truth was revealed to me in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus refined the Ten Commandments for how we must act into five new laws for how we must be. Moses forbid adultery, murder, and swearing falsely. Jesus outlawed lust, anger, all oaths, and said to love not just our tribe, but all people. And where Moses said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth... Jesus gave us the secret of life with his fifth command resist not evil. He said, Truth sets us free. And I felt free. My doubts ceased. I was saved from suicide. And I would become a holy fool.
0: That's our show for this week. My special thanks to Armin Shimmerman. And whether you consider yourself a holy fool or an unholy fool or maybe not a fool at all, you can email us at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. No fooling. Or you can visit us on social media at yegodspodcast. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't like it, try one more episode, and if that doesn't rock your pew, perhaps this podcast ain't your cup of communion wine. My thanks to all ye gods and goddesses who let there be light on this show. Dossie McCraw, Robin Rose Valentine, Selena Lauterer, and her team of Lady Archers at Artemis Independent. I'm Scott Carter, and until next time, safety and kindness to all.